Welcome to the What's a Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Corbett. As always, what's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well. It's December. It's the holidays. You know, I haven't told this story in a long time to you as revolutionaries, but I started cooking Thanksgiving dinner a couple years ago. And yes, I'd always gone out or my mother was here cooking. And because of my father's mental condition these days, I don't get a chance to have Bertha Corpru's Thanksgiving dinner. And so I started cooking three years ago and inviting my neighbor, Wayne McGee, over. And if anybody knows that relationship, when I talk about my neighbor, (laughs) us having Thanksgiving dinner was something that three years, four years ago would never have happened. But that's what Thanksgiving is about. It's about coming together Uh, when people reconciling their differences and finding peace and giving thanks to the people that they find closeness to. And I am grateful for my my friend and neighbor and dog care, dog taking care of. My Sasha loves staying with Uncle Wayne. And so I'm very appreciative that each year that I have been able to spend time on Thanksgiving, giving thanks to a friendship that probably wouldn't have come out of that if if we had not matured as men. This brother called the police on me. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, had our, had our differences. But being able to break bread with him over the years means a lot to me. So very, very thankful. I hope and wish that all of you all had a great Thanksgiving, that you give thanks to the the things in your life. If you remember on the last show, we talked about, you know, how we wake up every day and 70% of our thoughts are negative. I hope that you found time during Thanksgiving to find the positivity in your life, to be grateful, to find gratitude in the things that show up every day. You know, sometimes it's just the simplest things. It's the laughter of a colleague. It's the lick on your face of your dog when you get home. It's seeing your two daughters. It's seeing your wife or your husband. Seeing all of those things that you sometimes take for granted for. Be grateful for those things because you never know when this might be the last time you have the ability to show gratitude. So as you move into December, you know, we always talk about that you have to finalize your revolution. You should have asked that question a long time ago, early in January, late December of last year. What's your revolution? And you should have been working throughout this year, finding that answer. And I'm wishing you luck. I'm wishing you success as we come to the close of the year and hopefully the close of your revolution that you can look back and evaluate, using those terms, evaluate your success or the challenges you had in fulfilling. And so, as always, if you need my help, please make sure that you reach out What's Your Revolution at all mediums, Twitter, Instagram. You can hit me up on my personal Facebook page at Charles Corpro. I'm always fortunate to have great people on my show. And today is common. It is a common place for me to have a great person on my show. As we were talking, you know, in, we'll call it the green room. <laughs> the green room. Yeah, no doubt. We're talking in the green room. We talked about how we met. And I always have to say, this is a great brother of Omega Sasa. And I met this brother when he was pledging. And he was 21 mm-hmm. years old at Xavier University, Zach Sigma. And I won't tell the story. We won't, we won't be indiscreet, my brother. <laughs> but I met this young brother and we began a friendship, a friendship that has now spanned 14 years. And that's wow. an interesting thing. I- exactly. 
14 years. I've seen as, as, as we said in the show, beginning of the show, I met him as a young pup and he's turned into one of the greatest canines that I know. <laughs> he's a good brother. <laughs> if you look on my Instagram page at the What's a Revolution Instagram page, there's a, me, there's a picture of me and this brother, Victor Jones at Founders Day last year. And it was one of the most liked and one of my favorite pictures because we are we are embracing our Founders Day and our love for our beloved fraternity and just the friendship that we've had. So Victor, thank you for coming on the show. Let me get let me let me see if I can, you know, give this title out real quickly, you know, that I that I wrote down. Victor Jones is a Xavier graduate, undergraduate degree from Xavier University here in New Orleans. Got his master's from the Harvard School of Education. Again, I want to say that the Harvard School of Education. <laughs> right. You know, and then decided, you know what, I'm going to go back and get a law degree from Loyola Law School. He's a graduate of New Orleans Loyola Law School and is now the senior supervising attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center in New Orleans. And as I said, he is a good brother of Omega Sci-Fi. Did I get it correct, Vic? Got it all correct, big brother. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. You calling me big brother. I'm 25 years in. You got 14, brother. That, that's crazy. That that is right. Crazy. And I also feel like you just never not call someone big brother. It's like if you were calling him <laughs> big brother back then, then you just keep calling him that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's it's funny because I I still call my dad big brother. Hey, what's happening, big brother? No, no, okay. <laughs> yeah, and you, everybody knows my dad is spring 49, theta psi. Mega sci-fi fraternity. So it's always, what's up, big brother? Everybody, anybody who is 93 and older, it's always big brother. But Vic, let's get into the show, you know, and I've always got to ask my guests. It's my favorite question. What's your revolution, brother? You know, this is going to sound, I hope it doesn't sound bad, but is learning how to be more selfish. That's hmm. what I'm working on. Okay. I shared with a friend recently that I feel like the way that we are socialized as in this country as men, as, a, as black men, but also just as men in general, is that we always have to be the ones who are doing something for someone else. It's almost like the, remember like U.S. history, or not U.S. history, but like world history, when you learn about the early humans and you learn about the hunter-gatherer and, you know, it was always like, you know, the, the man being the one that would go out and and bring in food and things like that. And it's not at all that I think that that's what a man should do. I may, you know, consider myself to be aspiring, very progressive person. I believe that everyone has a, a role in life and place and that their role can't be defined. But I do think that just in my life, the confluence of factors of me living in the South, being a boy, being Black, being a single parent home, it's just always been my reality, and I've always been told that my reality is you need to do, you know, this step in order so that someone X can benefit from it, whether it be a spouse or whether it be a family member or whether it be your children one day. You build a life for your children. And I don't know what's caused any of this, but at 35, I realized, like, I've actually never just done for myself. Mm. I've never taken care of myself, you know. And I have this, you know, like this even more like this, this extenuating theory that what I just mentioned manifests itself in black men in the terms of like, you know, we're not taking care of our mental health. We're not taking care of our physical health. You know, African-American men have the lowest life expectancy, as we know, in the country compared to other ethnic groups. I don't know if you saw recently, but there was a study that concluded that the within the past 10 years, the suicide rate amongst black boys and teenagers went up over 20 percent. Right. Right. And so I've, I'm constantly trying to figure out the why behind that. 
And I just, I, where I'm at is I don't think that we give ourselves an opportunity to be selfish. I don't think we give ourselves an opportunity to be vulnerable. And I also am not so sure the world gives us that too. Mm. And so I, I, I am trying very diligently. It's not easy at all. <laughs> not at all to be able to be okay with saying things like I'm tired, right? Or I don't feel like doing something today. Or I I need help, right? Like these are all things that are so contrary to the way that we were raised. Right. You know, those are things that I would have never, ever imagined saying growing up. And I don't really know what's brought all of this about, but that's that's where I'm at today. And I'm really happy that I'm at that place because I don't think that I can be my best for those that I love and for my friends and even for the communities that I serve. Because, you know, throughout my adult life, I've been running off of this empty cup of like putting myself and my needs to the side so that I could either answer a greater good or take care of someone next to me. Right. So yeah, I'm kind of team selfish right now. Man, it's not I, in a bad way. It's, it's not. It's not like malicious selfishness. It's like I actually need these moments so that I could remain on this earth. You know, right. <laughs> or that like you know, so that I can be productive. So and it's not. Again, it's not easy at all. I I can easily go like you know an entire week and and look back and say like to myself, Victor, how, how what have you done for yourself this week? And and I'll I'll draw an empty blank. Right. Like. Wow. And wow. done anything I can, everything I can name, it's been done for someone else. And so I'm really trying to fix that. Man, I, I, I love that answer, Vic, because it's, it's quite contrarian. And if anyone who knows you, they search, right? You're the epitome of uplift, right? Let, let, let's keep it frat oriented, right? You're the right. epitome. You're always uplifting someone else, right? You're always taking the mantle, the charge to fight for someone else. And, you know, for us to say, right, that I'm going to be selfish, you know, people are going to be like, oh, what do you mean? It's selfish. You don't, you should be giving yourself. No, it's such a contrarian answer that nobody expects, but we do. We do have to be selfish about our physical and mental health. We do have to be selfish about how we take time out, right? When we say that mm-hmm. I'm tired, when we, when we, when you said that, I keep thinking about this John Henryism that we have, that we have to continue to strive, Vic, at every cost. And it's it's so interesting that you say that because I'm trying to figure out what is the role that Charles Corporu plays in this world, right? Because mm-hmm. being out front, Vic, right, and working to impact people's lives, it takes its toll on us. But then I watch my boys, right? And I had this conversation who are doing well financially, doing extremely well financially, right? If I do a Google search of them, you don't find anything about them, right? Mm. Nothing. We had a conference call the other day. We were just all talking. I said, I'm going to Google you all, right? Nothing of significance came up because they're always saying like, you can Google you, you, you got all this. I was like, but at the end of the day, you all are financially independent. Right. And they took time for themselves. They were like, We're gonna, I'm going to build wealth for myself. And in doing that, I'm going to build wealth for my families, right? I'm going to build wealth for my communities. I don't need to do all this. And so it's, it's quite interesting as I think about this. And as you said, do I become more selfish and say, I need to just focus on me? So I, I I love the answer, Vic, and I'm I'm sure it's going to make people who listen to the show think like, 
am I really t- spending some time taking care of myself? And you're not saying don't help people. You're not saying don't. Right. Be, yeah. You're saying at least think help about yourself. it. Right. Right. Help yourself. Because you, you, you do nobody any good if you have not done your healing work, if you have not done your trauma work. And it's so interesting that, you know, as I enter into any conversation that may lead to a relationship with a woman, now it's about early on in that conversation, how have you taken time to work through your trauma? And this is what I've right. been doing to work through mine. You know, and so it's it's I I love the answer pick. Thank you so much for just even pushing that out to us. I want to ask you this question, all right? And it's just one of those like quick like blurb, like I just want to know what Vic thinks. You know, if you could wake up tomorrow, if you could wake up tomorrow, like you go to bed tonight, like being just Vic, Victor Jones, but you woke up tomorrow with an ability or a skill that could help you change the world, what would it be? I wish that. I could give the entire world the skill, because it is a skill, of self-confidence. You know, in my work as a children's rights lawyer, or whether it be during my time as a kindergarten teacher, or whether it be even just like in my personal experiences as a child and an adult, anytime that I have done something unfavorable, it has been because I am hurting, right? It's been because I've had feelings of insecurity or feelings of jealousy or feelings of betrayal. And the more I see, and it's, again, it's a skill, but the more I see people doing like really, really, really bad things or things that are really hurtful to others, the more I'm now like inclined to ask myself, gee, I wonder what's going on with them. Why are they so hurt? You know, it's that phrase, hurt people, hurt people, right? Yes, they do. And so for me, if if, if no one is hurting, then just think about like all the things that, that we could accomplish individually and collectively in this world. And so one of the things I always advise the people that I supervise is you got to take care of yourself. Yes, because of these, you can't pour from an empty cup, cliche, but also because if you are pouring from an empty cup, you're actually hurting other people when you do that. And so if there was some way that everyone could feel that they are are worthy of love and, and affection and that they were worthy of friendships and that they were worthy of, of you know, being treated as a human and having their thoughts respected, I think we would see just so less hate in the world. Actually, I think it would go away, you know? Right, right. That power of confidence. Because you know, if if you look at the lineage of racism, and discrimination in this country. You, you you think about how hate and division were created, right? To keep us apart, to keep mm-hmm. certain groups down, to strip them of their confidence. You know, I have I have this conversation. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure that my uh, Christian listeners may not be happy with this, but it's it's factual. It's truth. My mother and I, you know, go back and forth about how the Bible was used to strip the confidence of slaves. Absolutely. You know, and but yet we still we still use the still use the Bible as a as as a a, a beacon of light and not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But we also have to use uh, understand how the words, how how the text of the Bible has been used. Right. And is still consistently used to keep people down, right? To strip them of their, you know, it is also interesting. My mother and I get into what, what I've what I've labeled is, is Christian shame. And so it's really interesting, but it, you're saying if that, that skill, if I can give you the self-confidence to believe in yourself, right? Day in and day out, minute by minute, second by second, how could you transform your life? And then how could you transform others' lives, 
right? Mm -hmm. Walking around with that self Hello, Victor. Hey, Charles, how you doing? I'm, I'm feeling great, right? How are you? I'm good. I feel good about myself, right? You're looking amazing. And thank yep. you for all the great work you do. Think about the positive affirmations that we have the ability to give to other people, right? It's Vic, you know, the re research on this is that when managers, right, heap praise on their employees, right? Even when an employee is not doing as well as they should, when they begin to heap praise on other people, right? Instead of creating negative energy, people work harder, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you want to receive that praise. Praise, it, it, praise builds confidence. And wow, I would love to feel like that. Let me work. Let me see how I can work hard. I listened to a national championship winning coach talk about how when he wanted to shift behavior in his players, he would find the player who was doing it right, right? And say, this is how it should be done, right? Right. Your footwork is amazing, right? Can you go over and show your other teammates how it's done? Mm -hmm. You know, and it is such right. a, yeah, it's such a powerful thing. You know, it's funny when I ask that, that question, most people never go again, Vic, you're giving giving yourself to someone else. When I answer that question, I'm always like, I'm trying to be able to teleport so I can go anywhere in the world. <laughs> you know <what> <laughs> right? Let me be in Greece on the beach for the afternoon right. and then I can have dinner in New York and then sleep, <laughs> fall back to sleep in, in New Orleans. You know? So that, that's see, how even I... Even saying that to me, even, even saying that to me, I, I consider that admirable because I'm still, as I mentioned, still trying to train myself to like actually want to treat myself and take care of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it was brought to my attention recently that I don't ask for Christmas presents at all. Really? Mm -mm. And it's not because of a particular set of beliefs. I've definitely wanted presents as a child. I think it's because when I became an adult, I felt like, well, the only thing that would make me happy is to see other people happy. Right, right. And so like, I'm more focused on everyone having, you know, the Christmas of their dreams. Or, you know, I had never had like a birthday party thrown for me in my adult years until recently. And it's because I never asked, you know? And so when my friends would say, not that I have bad friends, but like they'd say, well, what do you want to do for your birthday? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. You know, just like, you know? But right. I, I think it's just because I'm so used to not having to like think or, it sounds really bad, but like care about myself. And I don't know what the light switch is, but something has happened to where, you know, verbally I am, I'm rejecting that second by second while also like actually working on getting a free from that mindset. Yeah. You know, I want to dive into that, right? You know, why do you think that we get to this phase as men? And you're saying that the shift is happening to you. But this was early where you began to say, you know what, I don't, I don't need those things, right? I don't need to be celebrated. I don't need you know, because I'm like that as well. You know, I do love my birthday, uh, <laughs> but oh, I do now. I, I'm yeah. I'm mad if somebody don't do something for me. I'm like, yo, you are not my friend. This is right. my friendship. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I I love my birthday. You know, slice pizza, uh -huh. the drifter, a party with friends. I love friend. receiving gifts. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But you know, now as an adult, like receiving gifts, I'm like, nah, I'm good. Right? For Christmas, I'm uh -huh. like, you know, or with my mom and dad, I'm, you know, I'm. I'm 40 something. We're not going to say, you know, how old I am. I'm 40. And my mom wants to give me money. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Like, let me, let me, let me return this back to you. And, and so, but that draws an ire from her. Like, oh, you can return my money. Right. Right. So Vic, how, why, how do we get to this space, you know, of feeling like that we shouldn't be celebrated as men? I think particularly for black men, we have been really socialized to just not value ourselves. 
mm-hmm. you know we don't as black men collectively like we really don't love ourselves you know we don't really know how to love ourselves because you know in this society we've always been portrayed as not being like human but I think, uh, honestly, again, I think it goes back to hurt people hurting people. I think that's where it stems from. It's like, you know, you're not worthy of having feelings. You are, you're an aggressor. You know, it's like that mentality. Like, you can never be a victim. When you think about, like, Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice, it's like, you know, these are these are babies, these are kids, and, and they're being murdered, and it's, it's, it's that reoccurring narrative. Or Mike Brown, it's like, you're not even a child. You know, there's nothing right. innocent about you. You're an adult. You're scary. You're a threat. You must be eradicated. And I think that message has really, really been taken to us. And that's why I actually, I share a lot with like, you know, other black male friends. That's why it really frustrates me when I see us being like even more divisive, where there'd be like, you know, black men being homophobic or transphobic. Yeah, tell that story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, like that is a brother, that is a black man. Mm-hmm. And you, and we have that same like depreciation and value as human beings. And for you to want to suggest that your depreciation is somehow superior to someone else's, yeah. that to me means you're hurting. You, you're like, you're hurting. Because yeah. if you weren't, it, it wouldn't phase you in the slightest bit, you know? If, if you weren't, if you weren't hurting, you would say like, this is a black man. This is my brother. I love him. Even like, I'm, I'm running on a tangent, but like, I've realized it's actually like, I was telling one of my line brothers the other day, I love them. It was actually uncomfortable for me to say that. That's mm. sad to me. Isn't that sad? You yeah, know, it's like we I'm not, so not going to say, yeah, I'm not going to say it's sad, brother. I'm not going to say it at all. I think, it, I it, think it's that commentary that we, I just feel like we haven't really been like, we haven't had a space to like be emotive people, yeah, you know? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I think that's the part that's sad to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And what I've learned as I've gotten older, and, and it's particularly with my close, close friends, we can regularly say, hey, man, love you, you know, or I love mm-hmm. you, bro. Like, we'll end, like, my best friend, uh, Eli, I got four best friends, Kyrie, Quince, Eli, and Phil. We regularly okay. end phone calls, like, love you, bro. Like, love you, man. You know, just to make sure we all understand it. And and my childhood best friend, Quince, and I actually have been saying, like, love you, man, since we were in high school. Like, we were so close. Like, uh, you're probably too young to remember this. Like, if you remember the closeness of Isaiah and Magic when they were, you know, because they grew up together. And yeah, Quince might be mad if I'm, t- I'm telling this, but like I've seen the 30 for 30 document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they had to come back. <laughs> yeah, they had to come back together. But when they played yeah, each they other, yeah. yeah, they had to come back together. But when they played each other in the, what was it? 89, 90 finals, right? They gave like this kiss on the cheek, right? And everybody's like, what, what the hell is going on? But they were like, look, we grew up together. And, you know, and so Quince and I, like, we were so close, man. We were in high school. You know, we would dab each other up and like give a little kiss on the cheek, man. Like, what's up, man? Love you, bro. That's how tight we've always and like we got 47 years of friendship. Right. And we laugh at that. We like we laugh at that. But that's how close our friendship has been for 47 years. Like two very, very heterosexual men that even at a young age could be vulnerable with each other and say, look, I love you, man. Like and we would get into it like like, man. I ain't got time for you, but always be able to come back. And I think that's that's the bigger story. But I, I guess the point, what I'm saying is that as I've gotten older, more of my friends, more of my close friends have been able to say that. Like, hey, bro, 
I love you. But you're right. You you are so right. We we're not socialized to be as emotive. And how did your line brother take it when you when you told him, I love you? Oh, he said he loved me too. But it was actually, see, I'm gonna put my line brothers on blast because it was our birthday. It was it was the line brother that I would consider to be like a really, you know, like nice someone who could receive that. You right. know. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was one of my line brothers who could receive that. And it doesn't mean that my other line brothers would not have said that. I think they would have. But they probably would have had the same level of discomfort that I had by saying it. Right. right. I would get a chuckle telling Brett right now, hey, Brett, I love you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> laughing as I think about it because I'm just, I'm, 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 I couldn't imagine what his response would be. I know he'd say it, but I'm just trying to figure out, like, what would Brett say? <laughs> right. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> so we're putting that, we're putting the mantle out now, brothers. If you know, as you're listening to this, and ladies, as you're listening to this, you know, or other men who have partners that are that are men, you know, push your men to get out of their comfort zone, right? We all have friends that we care about. We all have loved ones that we have care about that, you know, be able to tell like another man, hey, bro, I love you. And and be and, and, and find and sit in that discomfort, you know, and as you said earlier, Vic, there's even more discomfort when you're telling, hey, man, I love you. And that person, you know, that person on the other side of I love you identifies as, you know, someone who may be same gender loving, you know, and I had to it's funny that you said it. I had to work through that aspect of my life, right? Being extremely heterosexual and extremely homophobic, you know, as I was younger mm-hmm. and now, as I as I've grown and I continue to grow, like wanting to be an ally and accomplice, because like like you said, like what the what the hell when people be like, yeah, I I don't I don't even want to be around them. What do you mean you don't want to be around them? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like so you're gonna dehumanize someone, right, to make yourself feel better, and I hate that, right? I I hate that so much that we even in our home in our own communities, right? Even in a yeah, look. On blast, even in our fraternity, right? We have uh-huh. issues that we have to deal with when it when it comes to some how people identify, and it, it it is problematic because that means that people can't live full lives, and you that's what we want, right? Because we we want to be able to live a full life, right? Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, so let's move on. I, I know we can get in, we can get into that conversation, but I want the world to know more about Victor Jones, right? Because there's a story there. Who is Victor Jones and why does the world need to know who you are? I don't know why the world needs to know who I am, but who I am is I am someone who is loving and who wants to be loved, who needs that from everyone. You know, I consider myself to be a very sensitive person. I carry the world on my shoulders. I think something that a lot of people don't know about me and, you know, maybe like, you know, those that are close in my world can tell you is I literally will stay up all night trying to figure out how to solve like some um, systemic problem or like dating me as a nightmare or being married to me (laughs) as a nightmare at times because when everyone is sitting down and having dinner, I'm staring off in the space. And it's really because I'm trying to figure out like, how do I solve this special education issue in this parish? Or how do I make sure that every single child in this state has all of the resources they need 
with mental health and support so that they don't become unnecessarily institutionalized. And it's been this way since I was a child where I would just sit for hours and try to think about ways that I could help as many people out as possible. Staying up all night, you know? And so like, sometimes it's like, I I don't want to use the term blackout, but it's almost like, yeah, it's like I, I go into this tunnel and then the next thing I know it's daylight and I have all these things jot down and I'm tired and sleepy, but I'm always like, always trying to help people out. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, just with between my father not being there and you know, having a lot of self-esteem issues growing up. And quite frankly, like having a mother who really didn't understand or appreciate, you know, the aspects of my father that I inherited that I have no control over, Mm. you know, I think those things cause a lot of hurt in me. And so when I say I want to help as many people out as possible, it's really me saying like, I don't want anyone to have to suffer or Mm. go through the amount of hurt that I have experienced. And I know that, you know, that my situation could be way worse. I don't mean that to be ungrateful, but something that my therapist has gotten me to realize in our last session, he said to me, you know, the reason why you're a children's rights lawyer and advocate is because of your own childhood issues. Mm. It sounds like, huh, I would have never thought about it that way, but he's absolutely right. I think that the, one of the greatest gifts that children have is innocence. I think innocence makes you a universally loving person. It gives you the capacity to love anyone or anything, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they bring, what baggage or circumstances. It also frees you, though, from self-doubt, and it allows you to, you know, explore and figure life out and create cures for cancer. (laughs) You Mm, know what I mean? Right. And and so... What I, the way that I look at my my role, my place in this world, what I think my place in this world is, is to make sure that as many children in this world as possible are able to maintain that level of innocence so that we can all benefit from it. Like James right. Baldwin said, you know, so these are our children. We'll all pay for or benefit how, or how they become. And so that's what I think I'm here for. And then sometimes I think, you know, maybe it's not really about me. Maybe maybe my gift to the world is my daughters. I, I, I've thought about that often. Like maybe it's, maybe they're going to be the ones that are, are just like these incredibly, you know, well-known and special people who, who have done so much good. And, and maybe I'm just like their dad. And, and if that's the case, I'm perfectly honored and fine with that too. You know, I would like to one day, you know, when, when life is all over and done with me, I, I'd like for people to to think two things about me and one of them was that I was a very intelligent and compassionate lawyer and then equally that I was a very good dad that means a lot to me Mm. and so I feel like if I can accomplish those two things then or that I'm on that I'm working towards accomplishing those things that I can have like a sense of inner peace you know that's why the world needs to know who you are Victor Jones right simply from that answer Right. That is why. And we'll, and we'll, de- we'll delve into, you know, the successes and challenges that you've had over the last couple of months fighting for the people that you love. But if we think about people who are revolutionary, right, we think about the revolutionaries of, of the past. They gave of themselves. Right. They felt that there was such a seismic change that needed to happen in the world that they gave of themselves fully and faithfully to their beliefs and to their cause. And that's what you're doing right now, right? You are fulfilling that, that revolution and from a community perspective. And as you said, in your home, thinking about I'm a father and how do I, how do I raise 
young girls to, you know, and, and help them become young women and women who are going to, you know, take up this mantle of revolution like you have, that change has to happen. People should not live without innocence. And I think that's the, that's the key to what I want people to hear tonight. Remember what innocence felt like. <laughs> you know, right. it, it, it's almost laughable now, Vic, because innocence. I, I, I asked myself this question. I was like, what happened to you? You used to just do without any remorse, without any you like you know thought. You would just do, and it, you said it, and it, it was almost like that. You'd lost your innocence because in, with with innocence you are fearless, mm-hmm. and with when you're fearless, guess what the world is to you? It is a playground, mm-hmm. right? You know, to sell is that when you become fearless, the world becomes the world changes. Right. The world changes when you become fearless. And how do we bring back? This is my question to you before I move on. How do we bring back our innocence, Vic? Well, I think it's a myriad of things. I've become a less obligatory person. And initially it's uncomfortable and it hurts and you hurt some folks. But the old adage is true that if people can't, you know, accept you for what what you need and your values, then they're really not your friend. And so I've had to, in the course of the past few years, not had to, but what has happened is almost like trimming the fat. There have been a lot of friends that I've had for a long time who aren't my friends anymore. And not because there was some public declaration, but just, you know, things tapered off and like our values were different. Surround yourself with people who share your values. Mm. Be able to exist with people who are not like you because you can learn so much from them. But also recognize that learning from them doesn't mean having to suffer, right? Like, you know, it's like, again, I'm always quoting Baldwin. (laughs) We can love each other and still disagree. But when your disagreement is rooted in my humanity and my dignity, then, I mean, that's it. That's a wrap. Right, right. And so I think like learning how to like set borders for yourself. I'm at a point now where, you know, it could be an obligatory fraternity function. And I might just say, you know what? I don't want to go. I won't go. I won't go. So whereas just last year, (laughs) I'd go and then like (laughs) complain about it afterwards. Like, oh, I could have been working or I could have been, you know, with my kids, you know, just learning how to like figure out what makes you comfortable. I, I, I just don't think that there's any substitute that i don't know why i was on this mtv news bench because i just oh, from the <laughs> 80s so i just mentioned like prince but there was something else that came on and it was from the this was actually from the early 2000s and it was with i think recently maybe the group tlc celebrated that like 25 years of crazy sexy cool right oh wow and that so, was my album back yeah, in the day crazy? 25 yeah. years old, yeah. Even, I remember Crazy Sexy Crew. I was 10 years old. Wow. <laughs> T-Boz left eye in Chile. In Chile, yeah. And so MTV was doing like this montage of like individual and collective interviews from them and something left I said, and you know, she was like always like the, the very like intelligent or intellectual thinker in the group. You know, she was talking about, this had to be like maybe a year or two before she died. And she was saying like, you know, throughout her career, you know, she had been the subject of like media father, fodder, whether it be from like, remember burning down Andre Rodgers? Yeah, I remember like, that. Yes, you know, she did. Uh, right. Or like being beefed out with her group members or like, you know, public spats and with, with people when she was drunk and, and back when she was younger. And she's like, I had to learn from it that the most important person in all of that is me. And I was mm. like, wow. Yes. You know? Because my initial reaction was to say, like, that's a selfish comment. Because remember, that's how we are are socialized to think. She's absolutely right. You know? And so 
I said after seeing, I was like, I, I got to figure out how do I get to a place where I can be there for others while saying like, yeah, it's okay to say like, you are the most important person to yourself because you, you, you won't be there for anyone else. And you need to be there for yourself so that you can be there for other people. Yeah. You know what? As you were talking, I'm thinking about, you know, taking 100% responsibility. And what I love is, is that she saw that, that she saw that she was the, the, the constant, the K in all of it. Like, I have to take responsibility for these things. I have to take responsibility uh-huh. for myself. And when you do that, Vic, right, when you really, really, really get down at a granular level and say, I'm here because of the choices and actions that I made, life changes. It's not easy. We love to blame someone else for how we got here. And let me, let me pull back. I won't say we. I used to love right? To blame everyone else for how I got here. This relationship's not working. So I did this because it's your fault. No, no, no. I had a decision to make, right? I just didn't make the decision and I cope like I always had. I did this, right? I'm sitting in this house by myself because I did this. And once people have the ability to do that, Vic, it changes their life, but it is hard to begin to take responsibility. It is, it is hard. I remember laying in bed one night and realizing like, like, Oh, shish, you did this. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, uh-huh. yeah, you uh-huh. did. And whew, so if you're out there listening, I want you to take time and think about asking and answering this question. How did you get here? And what was your role and responsibility in getting here? You know, and so that that's the that's the different thing. If you can get there, you might be able to find your innocence again. Because like I said, mm-hmm. when you become fearless, life becomes limitless. That's what that's what I wanted to say. I think I want to touch on a couple of things really quickly before I get into uh, another interesting question with you. You've had some big wins lately, right? You, uh, don't forget, people. He is the senior supervising attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center here in New Orleans. That's a that's a big title. That's a, that's a big long title that you got there for a thirty five year old man. You know, exactly. Right. So you've had some wins. You've had to you've had to stand up for some people. Right. And if I remember correctly, there were some students at a high school here in New Orleans that needed your help. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you chronicle that? Can you chronicle that a little bit for us? And what made you say that I'm going to take this case? Oftentimes I see just again with myself, I, I can find any experience that like spells out some systemic violation and 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 be able to empathize for it either because I have experienced it myself or I have seen someone experience it. I say that to say I think that's you know one of the biggest takeaways from this experience is like the importance of having someone who has lived these experiences, you know, not only in the room but being a leader. The children at that at the charter school weren't able to graduate because they allegedly participated in the water balloon fight. Tend to participate in commencement exercises. And, you know, I read this in the paper, and as soon as I did, I immediately, again, because I don't think negative, right? I'm always trying to figure out the why. I was like, wow, you know, I can imagine some of these children, just looking at the demographics of the school on paper, some of these children are probably first-generation high school grads. More than half of them were. And, you know, reading the stories in the newspaper of them saying, like, you know, their family have, have, have awaited their entire life to, for this day. And, you know, you got young brothers saying, like, you know, I stayed off the street so that I could graduate. And and to think that that would be deprived for them for, for something that 
hadn't been proven, but also more importantly, something that was forgivable, it just bothered me. And so whenever I get bothered, that's when it's 4 a.m. and I am staring off in the space and I'm in my head trying to figure out all the things I can do to help that group out. And then once I come to a decision to help out, I always say a little prayer, which is don't let me get in the way of what these people need, because we can sometimes get in the way, oftentimes. And I have to say, every time I've done that, it's always worked. You know, (laughs) I was very surprised that we won that lawsuit. Mm. But at the same time, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised because I worked hard on it. But I was surprised that, you know, we were able to get the the children to graduate 15 minutes before their graduation day. Are you Um, kidding me? uh Uh-huh. The judge ruled in our favor. And, you know, we recently filed, I recently filed a class action against the state's health department for over 47,000 children for not providing the mental health services they need. Mm. And that's huge. That is important. I cannot stress that enough. We we, we talk about like what the, the true, I would say the true civil rights issue of our day. People say education. I know. I mean, it's a lot of things, right? Like no struggle is better than the other. But I will say that the civil rights issue that gets the least amount of attention is access to mental health services. Man. Mm. People mm. who need mental health services but are either not getting them or not getting them routinely or are getting them too late have like a lower life expectancy of 25 years compared mm. to people who don't have mental illness. I talked about the suicide rate amongst black boys and also black girls significantly rising. Not having the appropriate mental health services causes and you know, I'm, I'm entering your territory now. <laughs> yeah. You know, family and peer strained relationships. Right. Damage, like low academic performance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And of course, when you have those two things, when you're, you're not able to communicate with your peers and you're not understanding what's going on in class, you suddenly become a behavioral problem. Right. Exactly. Because you don't have mental health services to, you know, teach you like coping mechanisms to address your anger or conflict resolution, the result is to have you kicked out of school, which is an exclusionary discipline practice. And after you've been kicked out of school X amount of times, you're in juvenile justice custody. And next thing you know, you're an adult who's incarcerated and you are the living example of the school to prison pipeline. Mm. I've seen it over and over again. I think the number is like more than 70, 70% of adults in OJJ custody have a mental illness or condition or behavior. 70%? Yes. No surprise wow. to me at all. You know, you start meeting these you start meeting these folks and they tell you things like, Well, I was dyslexic in high school and it's like, Well, did you ever get evaluated? No. Mm. Um, my, you know, my teachers knew though, but I on their breaks or whatever, I like no one ever pulled me to the side and then it's like, Well, no wonder you ended up where you are. Wow. Because wow. you weren't given all the tools you needed to succeed, right? Vic, that is you know, it's troubling. Well, that's why that case meant a lot to me. Yeah, no, I I, under, I understand that. And you taking up that mantra, right, to say 47,000 children, right? Mm-hmm. Taking up that mantra for 47,000 children who are, are in and that are just in the state of Louisiana, right? We're not talking about the other 49 states. We're just talking about in the state of Louisiana who are not getting the in adequate... The state of Louisiana crazy the adequate mental health resources and so you know one of the things i was thinking i was like why does a lawyer have to take up this but it's a policy right. issue it's a civil rights issue and who i i think that we've gone about it all wrong that we have been you know we've been ha- having clinicians and practitioners fight for this but it's a civil rights issue and who better than a lawyer right 
who cares and believes about this, who understands the mental health and educational ramifications of this, right? Um, you know, sorry, that, sorry about that. yeah, no, no, no worries. That um, the educational ramifications of this to make it work, right? And, and, and I'm sure our, our new our governor elect um, John Bell Edwards, he has to understand that this is this is paramount. You can't fight for education and not not fight for mental health. You know, and so that's why, again, if we go back to that is why the world needs to know Victor Jones, senior supervising attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center, because you are fighting every day to cure the injustices that are happening from an education perspective and a mental health perspective. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Yeah. And it's a very common sense approach when you think about it. What point is it in having the best education in the world if you don't have the appropriate mental health services to yeah. get and keep you in school. Yeah. And you think about those Not students who wouldn't, wouldn't have graduated, what their mental health psyche would have been. I couldn't, I couldn't graduate from high school. And then, like you said, graduating anywhere is, is a, a huge thing, but graduating high school in new Orleans, right. And all of the accoutrement that goes along with graduating. Like you said, some of these students are first generation high school graduates and when, which boggles some people's minds, but that means a lot. You know, because the first question that you ask, you know, someone from New Orleans is, where'd you go to school? And it's not where you went to college. It's where you went to high school, you know, and that, right. that in itself has you know, issues with it because it's also very, a, cla- a very classist and elitist question. It can be. Right. It, it, yeah. it can be. But Vic, you're doing amazing work. And I want the world to know that. That's why the world needs to know you. There needs to be more people out here fighting the injustices that we see in our community. And I want to give a shout out to Brandy Williams, who is the founder of Generation Success. And you should, you all should meet if you don't know Brandy Williams, Vic. She is opening okay. a school in Jefferson Parish, was going to open the school in Orleans Parish. But as we know, OPSB is OPSB. And so, but what the school is, is for students who are twice exceptional, right? Who have, yes, who have been diagnosed with, you know, a disability like autism, but also have, who also score high on other levels of achievement. And so, I need to meet this person. Yes, you do. talk about like experiences and what drives you. I am twice exceptional. Mm. I was a gifted child, but I was diagnosed with ADHD. Right. Mm -hmm. The first plaintiff that we we the per- first family that we ultimately ended up signing as a plaintiff was a little girl in Shreveport who is twice exceptional. She has ADHD and bipolar and she's gifted. And whenever she did not have her gifted classes, you know, it's like therapy for her because she right. wasn't having wasn't getting the mental health services. She would go into these psychiatric crises. Mm. And, you know, her mother didn't know what to do with her. And, and her mother kept being told, well, you just need to have her institutionalized. And who wants that for their child? I mean, we're talking, man, we're talking one of our plaintiffs, six years old, first time being institutionalized for seven days, 300 miles away from his family. Wow. wow. What is clinically appropriate about that? that nothing. Nothing is clinically nothing. appropriate. Nothing. Absolutely not. And you're reading the notes of the child at the psychiatric facility and the child's wedding to bed. Of course trauma or the child is not wanting to participate and keep saying that he misses his mother. Of course. Right. And so all we are asking the state to do is to do its obligation because these children's lives literally depend on it. Not even right. like 
hypothetically or conjecturally, you know, literally it depends on getting these services so that they can be productive. But I definitely want to meet that person. Yeah, no, I will make sure that I put Brandy Williams and Victor Jones together, two amazing people. Vic, the show is, you know, it's always, it it runs by fast, but I wanted to touch on, you know, a couple of things before we end, you know, as we talked in the green room, you know, you talked about your, your relationship with your, your daughters and fatherhood is one of the reasons why you're one of my favorite people i've you know fallen all over you know the, the pictures of you and nola and, and your and your newborn and mm-hmm. it just makes me feel good about you know seeing that and, and and having you know having your images of fatherhood but you talked about what fatherhood means to you can you tell the listeners you know what does it mean to you and 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 then talk about you know why you feel fatherhood is so important to you at this juncture of your life what fatherhood means to me is everything that my father did not do for me and what I didn't have. What fatherhood means for me in this juncture is an opportunity. One, it's a gift, but it's also an, that I don't take for granted, but it's an opportunity for me to come full circle with all the things that I did not have growing up and that really pained me. I have be, have learned to become very vocal about you know the struggles that I've dealt with growing up fatherless. And maybe because at first I just didn't know. Maybe at first it was like you never, you don't miss what you never had. But there did become a time in my life where I just wanted to know, like, you know, where's this person? And don't they love me? And then, you know, you start to, to experience feelings of shame. One of those first moments, I don't even know if my line brother knows this or not, but again, with our anniversary, one of those first moments of the shame, of being ashamed is meeting all of their fathers, wow. you know? And one of their dads asked me, where was my father? And then, I mean, that is a totally natural question to ask. Right. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't raised by him. I've only met him once. And so, like, literally, like, not wanting to be in situations afterwards. I used to envy people who had dads so much, especially in my, like, early 20s. Oh, I used to envy them so much. But, you see, we talk about, like, negative emotions. That that comes from a place of hurt. It's just because I didn't have it. And I think by at a certain point, I had really gotten at peace with it. You know, I knew that there was a reason. I knew that God had a reason for us to not be together. He and I, I, do, I would not have been the person that I am if, if my father had raised me. That I know. But I reached out to him after getting his phone number. He lived in my hometown, still does. I reached out to him after getting his number because he had a son and a son and a nephew a grandson to pass away, which was my one of my brothers and nephew that I've never met. And I saw and met my dad at 11 and hadn't spoken to him since. And then at 31, I gave him a call and left him a voice message and said, this is Victor Jones, give me a call back. And he called back almost immediately. And I told him that I was calling to apologize, or not to apologize, but to, con- to send my condolences because I said, you know, I'm a father now, and what you have just experienced is a parent's worst nightmare, so I will pray for you. And he said, thank you. And the minute he said, thank you, it was like a light switch went off on me. It was like, I finally have the opportunity to start interrogating. And so I just flat out said, I said, man, where you been? Mm-hmm. Where you been? You know, it's, I was like, I'm 31 years old. I've only met you once, and you... Growing up, you lived like maybe 10 minutes from me. Where have you been? Wow. And, you know, there was a litany of excuses. And, you know, some of them I did not appreciate at all. Like, you know, you know, one of the things he said was, well, first, you know, he was like, well, yeah, your mother wouldn't allow me to see you. And I said, you know, let's be very clear real quick. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not going to blame my mother for this because 
death can't keep me from my daughters. Nothing can. If I wanted to see Nola and Zora and their mother didn't want me to, she'll just have to figure it out. There is nothing that can keep me from seeing my children, right? And so how dare you throw your cowardice onto the person who actually was in my life, you know? And so I think at that point, he was really intimidated by me. We met up in person. He wouldn't look me in the eye. It was like talking to a grown child, you know, his hands were in right. his pocket, his head was down. It was so weird. I've never, I've actually never seen an adult like that before, you know, just like completely hunched over. It was like I was talking to a kindergarten. And I think he just really couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that, you know, here I am, you know, I was a lawyer and I'm dead and I had all these things going on and had no part of it. And right. I think he also couldn't understand why I was so comfortable with it, you know? And so I told him, I said, you know, we the whole purpose of this was to send my condolences. It doesn't have to be anything else. And, you know, he said he wanted it to be something else. He felt like that, you know, him losing a son and then me coming back into his life was, was you know, God-ordained. And I said to him, I said, that's fine, but I reiterate, you don't need or have to do this because I'm, I'm an adult now. And I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for that. Truthfully, of course I was looking for it, but it was a defense mechanism, right? right I didn't want to get right. my hopes up. I didn't want to get my hopes up. And he promised me that we would have that relationship. And I called him maybe three times afterwards and he never returned my phone call. Oh, I'm sorry. And for that, that to me was the biggest letdown. It wasn't the fact that you weren't around for 31 years. It was the fact that, you know, you didn't have to, like, that was almost intentional. I took it. You know, it's like, I, I told you we didn't have to do this. And you, you got my hopes up, you know. Nicole has never met him. I had always wanted her to meet him, obviously. Right. And, you know, my children, they know, Nolan knows that my dad is alive. I'm very transparent with her. She also knows that, you know, he's not, what she'll say is he's not nice. That's what she'll say. And I'll say, yeah, you're right. He's not nice. I think something that I, I know I'm going to have to go and really talk to my therapist about, I took both my daughters to Jackson County Fair, which is like a big thing when you're growing up, you know, right. in Mississippi, uh, maybe last month. And there's just this image in my head, you know, of like, I got my oldest, I got my baby on my shoulders, Dora's on my shoulders, and Nola's holding my hand at the fair, eating a bag of popcorn, and they're both just happy. And I look up, and man, I, I, when I tell you, like, less than 100 feet away, it was my dad. Wow. And I could not wrap, and I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that, like, that is those girls' grandfather. Right. And he has no idea who they are and has no interest in wanting to know. And they have no idea who he is. Right. And what gave, the only thing that made me happy about that situation was looking at both of my daughters just, you know, smiling and Nola's just down in her cotton candy that we later had to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that is what I mentioned earlier. Like, that's the level of innocence that I wish I had, that notwithstanding so much ugliness that you have enough hope and love and security in your world that like, like, all right, you're unsafe. And so I do forgive my father. But I'm also very vocal now about the fact that, like, you know, this is when we're talking about being selfish. Like, he was wrong for that. You know, right. that hurt. He should not have mm-hmm. done that. That was mm-hmm. terrible. You don't, you don't do those things. And it's okay. And I'm learning, like, it's okay to say that. And so I'm actually really proud of myself even sharing that because I, yeah. I, had, buried it, I had buried it behind me. But, like, it always comes up. There's not a day that goes by where I don't think about my father. I don't understand how to, like, move past that. 
and I'm still working on that. Yeah. But I, and I love I, that. I, yeah. But what I also know though is that like I always felt like despite everything I went through growing up, that I was always really lucky. You know, like anything I wanted in terms of like academics, like I always got it. I wanted a full ride to Davy, I got it. Wanted to go to Harvard, I got it. I wanted to be a lawyer, I got it. You know, I wanted, you know, these dream jobs, I got it. And I always wanted to be a father, and I am, twice. And so I, I feel like it's almost like the universe thing. Like, for everything you didn't have, like, we're going to give you that and more. Wow. Wow. And so that's why I say I can never complain because, you know, my girls are literally like, my God, I can be driving to work and will a tear will fall down my cheeks like thinking about them right you know that's just how how deep my love is for my daughters and you know i do struggle like self-love and things like that but one thing i always know i'm good at i always know that i'm a really good dad right. and it's like the one compliment i will receive if someone <laughs> tells me i'm smart i'm like eh, I, I don't think so but if someone tells me that I'm a good dad, I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am mad at that. I, yeah, I'm a really good dad. <laughs> yes, you are a really good dad. And, and if you go, if you check out his uh, Instagram, what's your Instagram page, brother? I think it's actually straightforward. It's like Victor underscore M and then money underscore Jones. Gotcha. Except oh. I don't have money like that. <laughs> <laughs> go check out his Instagram page and you'll get to see how he interacts with his wife and his kids, man. It, it, is, a, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch and that's why i say you know i always comment uh with something if i see something i'm like mm, you know like this brother's doing it. he's a great husband he's a great father vic man the the time has run short brother and i want to first thank you for you know spending time on a tuesday night when i know you want to go in and put your girls to bed kiss your wife and you know we've been trying to get this interview for a while so i appreciate it you know yep. just yeah thank just, you Gratitude. Gratitude. I also thank you for the humility and the the humbleness that you brought to this interview. It is. It means a lot to me. Tremendously grateful that the people get to hear this young brother who is thirty five years old who is changing the game. You know, changing policy, and that's that's what you have to do to be revolutionary in the world today. You got to change policy, and when you do that, you're changing the way that people behave. And when you change behavior, you have power. And this is what this brother is doing. So, Vic, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for spending this hour with me and my my listeners as they understand who you are, why you're needed in the world, and what's your revolution. You know, as we close, I want people to know that I am grateful for everyone who who listens and participates in this show. It is my gift to the world, hopefully. It is my revolution to be able to help men find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. This show is also therapeutic for me because I get to go back and hear things that I need to hear as a man. I started this show th almost three years ago. We'll be celebrating three years, January 17th, you know, because there was nothing out there that spoke to men of color when, as we, as we traverse, as we listen to Victor's journey, as we traverse this, this world, this, this life with that we had to live with the trauma that we experienced with the ups and downs, the challenges and joys, trials and toils, <laughs> you know, that we face, where was this? Where did I hear other brothers? So I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful that each time that I get to do this, that it helps me and I hope that it helps other brothers out there and their partners help them find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. And so I ask you, you know, to, to bring a close to this revolution and begin to ask your next question. What is your next revolution? And so, if, again, if I can help you, I'm always here. So thank you for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday, wonderful holidays, and we will see you soon. Take care and thank you for listening to 
the What's Her Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal. Peace, everyone.